If you've been with us in the past, you know that uh, we have looked at some of these messages, sermons that are in the middle of Acts. Uh, We looked at one a few months back about Stephen. We looked at one we're in the middle of in Acts 13 about the Apostle Paul. And in these messages, they look back upon the Old Testament. Both sermons were focusing in on who Jesus Christ is, a bullseye upon Jesus. Both the Old and New Testaments have Jesus Christ as the main character. The Old Testament is looking forward to it, and the New Testament is giving us a a report of his coming and then of his teaching in the epistles. Now, when we do this, we realize that there is plenty of criticism about the Old Testament. Criticism that the Old Testament is really not the word of God, we get this from, I suppose you could expect this from atheists or agnostics, but the problem is, is that people who traffic in Christian circles take pot shots at the Old Testament, and to me it seems kind of like sniper fire. The attack sounds something like this, that the Old Testament is not the word of God. It's a series of books written a long time ago by men who were just influenced by their culture. And so it was just their own cultural mindset of God, which explains all the gory violence. Uh, It explains all the, the vengeful, judgmental acts of God. And they'll go on and say this, the only real word of God is Jesus. I mean, God is not the vengeful judge. He's more of a sweet Jesus who, you know, never judges and gives popsicles to children as they're on his lap. That's the Jesus that we all know. Now, here are some examples of how the critics of the Old Testament will give before they go apoplectic. 1 Samuel 15 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill every man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Whoa. It gets worse. Hosea 13, 16. Samaria shall bear her guilt because... She has rebelled against her God, and they fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. I mean, what do you do with that? And here, here's how people would respond. There are critics that say, now, would Jesus judge like that? Uh, that's not the God we know. This is a maniacal God that was conjured up in the minds of confused authors. Add to this the confusing passages in the Old Testament where you have prescriptions about what to eat, you know, no shellfish, prescriptions about the kind of fabric you're to have in your clothing. I mean, why don't you read those passages passages and attend to it instead of, let's say, condemning homosexuality? Why are you picky and choosy about the Old Testament passages that you use? Now, we're going to address some of these 
specific criticisms in later in a later message. I just want to give you a general feel for how these criticisms work. The final nail in the coffin is to quote a couple of Christian authors who are not fans of the Old Testament. And there you go, the Old Testament is dead. Right? Now, most disturbing about this is how many Christians who ought to know better get caught in this wave of making God into their own image. We don't want this vengeful God. Uh, Just before the death of actor W.C. Field, a friend visited his hotel room, and they found W.C. Fields leafing through the Bible, and his friend, knowing that he was not, you know, uh, a believer in God, said, W.C., what are you doing? And he goes, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> looking for loopholes. We're going to be taking a little hiatus from Acts. It's related, because we've been talking about in the middle of Acts 13, these Old Testament passages. But I have felt the need for us to just pause and consider these criticisms and ask ourselves whether the God of the Old Testament can be the same God as the new. Was Jesus affirming of judgment as well? Was he? Is that the Jesus that we know? First of all, let's just acknowledge we don't know it all, okay? I don't know that all that there is to know about the Bible, but I think that there are some things that God has made clear. Well, my job as your pastor is to have us fit our view of God based on the Word of God. So our view of God, the Old Testament, our view of Jesus, can it possibly be consistent? Or are we talking about two completely different views of God here? Well, for a little background, I want to talk about a couple things. But first, let's pray. Ask God to help us. Father, we approach this with a great amount of humility, knowing, again, that we don't know all that there is to know about how to handle some of these things. But you, you have seemed to make some things clear to us. So we don't want to shy away. We don't want to be chicken about it. We don't want to um, avoid things that are uncomfortable. We want to look at your word as openly and honestly as possible. But we do so not wanting to speak authoritatively when we shouldn't, and certainly not wanting to be arrogant about how we approach these things. And so continue to give us great humility. We just want to see you for who you really are. And we do not want to try to make an image of you which you are not. We don't want to create an idol. And so we're all here to learn. We're all here to open up your word and to have you teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first thing to consider when we talk about this is that we are warned that people will tilt toward a permissive state and not one that honors God's word. The Bible tells us this. The Bible warns us about Christians becoming too tolerant of teaching that does not align with the Word of God. Now, by the way, this cuts both ways. I think, to to be fair and intellectually honest, there are those who lop off 
the portions about God's grace and God's love and take a very legalistic approach to the Christian life, right? So what we're trying to do is let the Bible speak for itself and, and hopefully have a more accurate view of God than one that's kind of lopsided. But we're warned that people will tilt toward a permissive state and that people will follow teachers that fit their own passions. Paul said this in 2 Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. First of all, the first sentence. Who's to judge the living and the dead? God and Jesus Christ. Whoa. He goes on. And by his appearing in his kingdom, uh, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, if you want to cut out the Old Testament because you think God is judging, then you're going to need to cut out the New Testament as well. And what are you left with? Well, people would say, just Jesus' words. We'll talk more about that later. But let's recognize that what Paul is saying here is that people become far less interested with truth and want to more align their desires with you know, the teachers who affirm those desires, whatever they are. This is a predicted state of things. And I think you could say Paul had his finger on something. Next, we are warned of spiritual forces that deceive and denigrate God's word. Satan's most prolific weapon is not the blatant evil or you know, the blatant sex, sexual immorality. He's too insidious and clever for that. Let's look at some of his names and see if we can't kind of build a case for what we're dealing with here. First, he's called Satan in Matthew 4.10. The term literally means adversary. That means Satan is an adversary to God, to Christ, and his followers. He's against them. That's his nature. He's called the devil in Matthew 4.1. The term means a slanderer. What does a slanderer do? A slander spreads lies about their enemy. They spread half-truths about their enemy. So Satan is in the business of giving half-truths and lies about God and about his followers. In John 17, 15, he's called the evil one. That means he is intrinsically evil. He cannot think. He cannot act. He does not have a motive outside of evil. Nothing good exists in him. Everything he does is evil. In Revelation 12, 379, he's called the great red dragon, meaning that he is a destructive creature that aligns with 1 Peter 5, 4 that says, 
He acts like a roaring lion seeking what? Whom he may devour, whom, whom he can destroy. And then he's called the ancient serpent in Revelation 12.9. What does that conjure up? Ancient serpent. Is it not the scene in the garden with Adam and Eve? Ancient serpent. Do you remember the first act in history by the ancient serpent? Did God really say that? Nothing more fitting than when you hear criticism of the Old Testament. Satan's first act. Did God really say that? Those should flash before us whenever we hear those critics, those words. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That means he, he influences the, the thought, the religious and ph- philosophies of the world. He's called a liar in John 8.44. He always perverts the truth. He always perverts the truth about God. He always perverts the truth about God's people. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser. He's opposing believers before God, accusing them, saying things that are not true about them to condemn them. So, Satan uses the world system, religious system, Media, it doesn't mean all those things are are, are evil, but he uses them. Popular opinion and individuals to do what? To give half-truths, to give lies about God. So we can't be naive to the spiritual forces that are being used in this way. To take it even further, check this out. He infiltrates the church. He infiltrates the church, and he seeks to lead believers astray. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 11. And what I am doing, I will continue to do, Paul speaking, in order to undermine the claim of those who'd like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, they're going around saying they're doing the work of God. They're really not, and I've got to do battle with these guys. For such men are false apostles deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In the church, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness twisting the truth. And Paul says, I cannot quit preaching because these yahoos are still out there and I have to set the record straight. I have to do battle with these people who pervert the truth and I do not want God's people to be fooled. Which is why I'm doing this sermon, and the one following, by the way. I do not want you to be fooled. 
We have to worship God for who he is and not what we imagine him to be. It's, it's sappier, easier to present a God that's nothing but love and nothing else, not a God of judgment. That's easier, but it isn't true. That's not the God that has revealed himself in the Bible or through Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jeremiah 9, 29 through 24 says this, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man, and by the way, what gets me about this, let not a wise man boast is what I've heard when people criticize the Old Testament is that we have progressed. We've progressed way beyond what those, you know, Neanderthal Old Testament authors, they, they knew very little. Science has helped us. Human rationalism has helped us. We've, we've gone beyond this Old Testament record, and we understand things so much better. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. First of all, let's, just under, let's at least say this. There are some things about God we can understand. There are some things about God that we can know. And in this postmodern world that says you cannot be certain of anything and you're arrogant to do so, we have a declaration. It doesn't say I know everything. It doesn't say everything I read I understand, but there are some things I can know. There are some things I can understand about God as he reveals himself to me through the Bible, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, and check this out, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Loving kindness and justice and righteousness, like parallel tracks, grace and truth, holiness and love, parallel tracks of who God is. Again, we like to lap one side off to be more comfortable with another side. But that's not the God of Scripture. And that's not the God revealed in Jesus either. So, let's just look at some Scriptures that take a look at judgments from a biblical perspective. Now, if you want to gain visitors and you want to have a seeker service to appeal to people to come to your church, don't speak on judgment. But my job is not to appeal to you. Do you know that? I love you. I want you to be glad about what you hear, but sometimes you won't be but I can't let the tail wag the dog. My responsibility in any preachers is to give the word of God as it says it to make it as clear as possible. So I hope that you embrace these things. If you do not, then you need to go through the Bible, ask God to give you wisdom, read it, and ask yourself whether these things be true that I'm saying, okay? If they're not, let the word of God be the judge. 
not what I say. Because in the end, that doesn't matter much. But it matters what this says to us. First of all, we learn this, that God's judgment is uniquely God. It's uniquely God-like. God is called the judge of all the earth in Genesis (laughs) 18.25. Listen, judgment is an essential part of God's character. Now, let that sink in for a second. As God was describing himself to Moses, he said this in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is all that true? Absolutely. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's also true about God. In Isaiah 28, 21, Isaiah comments on the judgment of God. This is interesting. He says it's strange and alien. That's a way of saying that no one executes judgment like God does. It's It's alien to us. We can't relate to that because only God judges like that. No human judges like God judges. Nothing on earth can replicate the judgment of God. No man can fully copy the judgment of God. It is something unique to God. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful, right? No facts escape him. Whatever sentence is consistent with who he is, he can bring out immediately if he wants and execute his judgment. God does not need the FBI to find out what the truth is. God does not need a coalition of other nations to come together to agree with him. We read of God's dealing with people to clean out the promised land. We might think, wait a minute. They didn't have a judicial system that claimed that they were innocent until proven guilty. Listen, God, being God, is able to make such judgments anytime he wants. It's one of the prerogatives of being God. Who gives life? Who brings death? God. And by the way, the sense of entitlement for every human being in this regard is so massive. Sin brings about what? It brings about death, does it not? Who is deserving to die? Every person on the planet because every person has sinned. Every person is born into sin. None of us deserve to live. If God were to be fair, we'd all be dead. That's the fairness. It's grace that we are even alive. Do you realize that? That's the truth of it. So to say to God, you have no right. I mean, really? 
You know, it's like your three-year-old saying to you as a parent, you have no right to ground me. Like, really? It's not fair, right? Wow. Multiply that by a billion times, and it's human beings to God. It's his prerogative. Strange, alien, yes, but it's God. It's God. Next, God's judgment is true and impartial. In Romans 2.2, we read that God's judgment is right or according to truth. He judges the heart and the behavior not on hair color, skin color, not on your economic level, not on your background. Psalm 9.8 informs us that God judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. That's a way of saying God's never wrong. There is no need to second-guess God. There is no appeal to a higher court because God is supremely sovereign, the ultimate authority, right? True and impartial. Number three, all people from all faiths and backgrounds will have to face the judgment of God. I mean, comfortable? No. True? Yes. Hebrews 9.27 states emphatically, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Romans 3.19 says the whole world is accountable to God. Paul implored the Jews to consider Romans 2.3 that they, being the vehicles through which God delivered the law, will have to face the judgment of God. Those who are religious will face God's judgment, and those who are irreligious will also face God's judgments. And the good news is, those who are in Christ will escape the condemnation. Romans 8.1 reiterates the point by saying, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse four says that there is no escaping from God's judgment And what this means is God's judgment will either be poured out upon Jesus on our behalf or poured out upon the individual. I mean, we live in the midst of a legal system, do we not? Where money can get you off. I mean, if you get a speeding ticket, and yes, I've had plenty of experience with this, um, you can go and you can pay somebody, all right, to get your ticket written off so you don't get any points on your record, right? Right? Well, not everybody has that privilege, but you can do that. Now, if you have an offense more serious and you have more money, you could actually pay a lawyer to maybe lighten your sentence or maybe even get off, right? I mean, you learn how to grease the system, correct? That's just the way it works. There are no loopholes in the judgment of God save the redemptive work of Christ. No act or motive is done in secret with God. The psalmist says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Is it possible for anybody to escape God's jurisdiction? The psalmist also wrote, where shall I go from your spirit? Or who shall I fear from your presence? The judgment of God is inescapable. 
Next, the judgment of God brings deliverance to the, to the righteous and doom to the wicked. Doom is certain for those who have rejected Christ. They are lost in their sin. They've rejected the God of the universe. They've rejected his sacrifice that in his great grace has offered to anyone, and they say no. 2 Peter 2.9 says, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You read that and you say to yourself, well, now, wait a minute. It sure seems like God is asleep at the wheel here because if he's judging people, it seems like people are getting away with all kinds of stuff, right? There's a lot of evil going on. I mean, when is God going to enter the play and stop this thing? Well, the Bible tells us that God is merciful, that a thousand years is like a day to God. And the wait is merely an expression of God's grace to give people time to repent. Second Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, I think of this, and I think, you know, believers that are getting persecuted around the world more now than any other time in history seems unfair. And you may be thinking of a way that people have hurt you or done some injustice against you, and you're like, you're thinking, man, I wish God would just, you know, rain down his holy tear on these people, right? You're, you're wanting some kind of vengeance, right? It's instructive for us to know that God is keeping track. But listen to what James says. Christians kind of in a similar situation, being abused, taking advantage of it, and he says, be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's coming. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of that. Okay? That sometimes can keep us in the game because you've been so deeply wounded and hurt. And it's not that you can't have the, you know, the earthly justice system be used. I'm not saying that. But at least in an eternal sense, in a term of people getting their full recompense, that's something that God will do. Some will contend, well, all this talk about judgment, you just made a case for why I reject the Old Testament. You just make a case for why this God is not a judgmental God, I think. <laughs> and, and Jesus certainly was not that way. I mean, Jesus progressed. His word actually, you know, so much softer. He didn't embrace judgment at all. Okay, let's just start with this statement. That's a lie. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, Jesus was many things. And one of them was he understood judgment. In fact, he's going to be a part of judgment. Jesus was an advocate for the judgment of God. I mean, listen, people who want to get rid of the Old Testament, this just cracks me up. It's like trying to 
get rid of a mouse in your house by burning it down. Let's burn the whole house down. You cut off your nose to spite your face. What are you doing here? Do you even realize the inconsistency of all this? What kind of Jesus would you have without the Old Testament? If you're just wanting to hold on to Jesus and nothing else. That's a fairy tale, Jesus. This deception runs deep. It fails to acknowledge that Jesus was an advocate for the judgment of God. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Mark 9, 42 and 49, Jesus' words, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life. Now, this is like, this is like applying the law, right, to how you're gonna deal with sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than two hands to go to hell, to the, to the unquenchable fire. Did Jesus just say hell and unquenchable fire? I think he did. Wow. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if someone wears a Cubs jersey, cut it off. Get rid of it. It's in the Greek. And if, I, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. I mean, that's Jesus. To those towns who rejected the disciples of Christ, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 15, truly I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He doesn't judge. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you on that day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Matthew 25. Where the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people. Now, who's gonna sit on the throne? Jesus, who's gonna judge? Jesus. And he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. And then we jump ahead to verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the holy fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You want to know why I'm so interested in racial reconciliation? You want to know why I'm so interested in feeding the poor? You want to know why we're so interested in Life 360 here in town? Because the passage is like this. You say you love your neighbor, then you better put some feet and hands to it. Because that's exactly the kind of Jesus that it lives inside of us. And when, when we love people like that, then they're able to say there's something different about these folks. My dear friends, we are not worshiping a different God now than what was in the Old Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be not deceived. Now, we're no longer under the Old Testament law. We don't have to follow the ceremonial laws. We don't have to follow the civil laws. This is not a, a, a theistic, you know, constitution that we have set up. It's not a theistic nation. God has not operated that way now. But even all of those things in the New Testament are instructive for us because they were a shadow of what's to come. And they remind us of how sinful we really are because we've not followed the law. So how are we to respond to all this? Well, we look to the book of Hebrews for this. When the writer of Hebrews wrote of God's judgment or, or ended the section by saying this, Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Put that on your marquee. Christ Community Church. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's go to that one. But it's true. Now, by fire, that means he judges. Just like in, Paul wrote in Corinthians, that your, your works will be burned up. It's a metaphor for God's judgment. Right? Let us be grateful let us be grateful that, that God is a judge, that he judges righteously, and that he has judged your sin. And it's why he sent his son, the perfect sacrifice, to die on a cross, and it's why we can live today. And it's why we can live tomorrow. And it's why we have the promise of eternal life. Let us be grateful that God judges and let us worship him with reverence, with awe. Does that describe the evangelical church in America? Reverence and awe? No, it seems more like a comfortability. But perhaps there needs to be an understanding that with this reverence and awe, 
that we are to take seriously the commands of God, that we're to take seriously the Old Testament, that God has spoken in his word and through Jesus. And it's nothing to trifle with, that we have at best 70 some years on this earth, we cannot squander our time. We're to soberly come before this God and to give our lives to him as a sacrifice and raise our children to love him and to fear him and to take every day and not miss a day to train them, to teach them, to be the kind of husbands and fathers and wives and mothers that he has called us to be and not to waste another minute. Not to act like we've got all of eternity before us and just do what we please because I don't have time for that. When a person lives with reverence and awe, they prioritize the things living in obedience to God. I fall under his lordship and that's my priority. I don't have time for the other stuff because I'm trying to be obedient to God. That's the priority. That's what reverence and awe does. You recognize the priority of the lordship of God in your life. Here's the thing. If you don't face that now, you will be faced with that at the judgment. And there will be a judgment for all Christians. And you will be asked, why did you squander all of those years? Why did you not raise your children up? Why did you not do the things that I asked you to do? And what are you going to say then? I'd much rather be answering that question now than then, because every one of us is going to have to give an answer. He will hold us accountable. And I think that's why the Bible says he will wipe away our tears. Do you ever think about this? Why are there tears in heaven? Because I think at that judgment, we realize, oh, I've squandered my life. How could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so ignorant? How could I have been so obstinate before a holy God? And then you'll know. And then every knee will bow and confess that he indeed is the Lord. You can bow now and enjoy all that God has for you, or you can bow later. Let's pray.